Chapter 20 of Erasmus and the Age of Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Erasmus and the Age of Reformation by Johann Hausinger. Translated by Frederick Jan Hauptmann. Chapter 20 Last Years. Religious and political contrasts grow sharper. The coming strife in Germany is still suspended. Erasmus finishes his Ecclesiastes. Death of Fisher and Moore. Erasmus back at Basel, 1535. Pope Paul III wants to make him write in favor of the cause of the council. Favors declined by Erasmus. De Puritate Ecclesiae. The End, 12th July, 1536. During the last years of Erasmus's life, all the great issues which kept the world in suspense were rapidly taking threatening forms. Wherever compromise or reunion had before still seemed possible, sharp conflicts, clearly outlined party groupings, binding formulas were now barring the way to peace. While in the spring of 1529 Erasmus prepared for his departure from Basel, a strong Catholic majority at the Diet at Speyer got the recess of 1526, favorable for the evangelicals, revoked, only the Lutherans among them keeping what they had obtained, and secured a prohibition of any further changes or novelties. The Zwinglians and Anabaptists were not allowed to enjoy the least tolerance. This was immediately followed by the protest of the chief evangelical princes and towns, which henceforth was to give the name to all anti-Catholics together, 19 April 1529. And not only between Catholics and Protestants in the empire did the rupture become complete. Even before the end of that year, the question of the Lord's Supper proved an insuperable stumbling block in the way of a real union of Zwinglians and Lutherans. Luther parted from Zwingli at the colloquy of Marburg with the words, Your spirit differs from ours. In Switzerland, civil war had openly broken out between the Catholic and the evangelical cantons, only calmed for a short time by the first peace of Kappel. The treaties of Cambrai and Barcelona, which in 1529 restored at least political peace in Christendom for the time being, could no longer draw from old Erasmus jubilations about a coming golden age like those with which the Concord of 1516 had inspired him. A month later the Turks appeared before Vienna. All these occurrences could not but distress and alarm Erasmus. But he was outside them. When reading his letters of that period, we are more than ever impressed by the fact that, for all the width and liveliness of his mind, he is remote from the great happenings of his time. Beyond a certain circle of interests, touching his own ideas or his person, his perceptions are vague and weak. If he still meddles occasionally with questions of the day, he does so in the moralizing manner, by means of generalities without emphasis. His advice about declaring war on the Turks, March 1530, is written in the form of an interpretation of Psalm 28, and so vague that at the close he himself anticipates that the reader may exclaim, 
But now say clearly, do you think that war should be declared or not? In the summer of 1530, the Diet met again at Augsburg under the auspices of the Emperor himself, to try once more to, quote, attain to a good peace and Christian truth, end quote. The Augsburg Confession, defended all too weakly by Melanchthon, was read here, disputed, and declared refuted by the Emperor. Erasmus had no share in all this. Many had exhorted him in letters to come to Augsburg, but he had in vain expected a summons from the Emperor. At the instance of the Emperor's counsellors, he had postponed his proposed removal to Brabant in that autumn till after the decision of the Diet. But his services were not needed for the drastic resolution of repression with which the Emperor closed the session in November. The great struggle in Germany seemed to be approaching. The resolutions of Augsburg were followed by the formation of the League of Schmalkalden, uniting all Protestant territories and towns of Germany in their opposition to the Emperor. In the same year, 1531, Zwingli was killed in the Battle of Kappel against the Catholic cantons, soon to be followed by Oikolampadius, who died at Basel. It is right, writes Erasmus, that those two leaders have perished. If Mars had been favorable to them, we should now have been done for. In Switzerland a sort of equilibrium had set in. At any rate, matters had come to a standstill. In Germany the inevitable struggle was postponed for many years. The Emperor had understood that to combat the German Protestants effectively, he should first get the Pope to hold the council which would abolish the acknowledged abuses of the Church. The religious peace of Nuremberg, 1532, put the seal upon this turn of imperial policy. It might seem as if before long the advocates of moderate reform and of a compromise might, after all, get a chance of being heard. But Erasmus had become too old to actively participate in the decisions, if he had ever seriously considered such participation. He does write a treatise, though, in 1533, on the sweet concord of the Church, like his advice on the Turks in the form of an interpretation of a psalm. 83. But it would seem as if the old vivacity of his style and his power of expression, so long unimpaired, now began to flag. The same remark applies to an essay on the preparation for death, published the same year. His voice was growing weaker. During these years he turned his attention chiefly to the completion of the great work which more than any other represented for him the summing up and complete exposition of his moral theological ideas, Ecclesiastes, or On the Way to Preach. Erasmus had always regarded preaching as the most dignified part of an ecclesiastic's duties. As preachers he had most highly valued Collet and Vitrarius. As early as 1519, his friend John Becker of Borsalen urged him to follow up the Enchiridion of the Christian Soldier and the Institutio of the Christian Prince by the true instruction of the Christian Preacher. Later, later, Erasmus had promised him, at present I have too much work, but I hope to undertake it soon. In 1523 he had already made a sketch and some notes for it. 
It was meant for John Fisher, the Bishop of Rochester, Erasmus's great friend and brother spirit, who eagerly looked forward to it and urged the author to finish it. The work gradually grew into the most voluminous of Erasmus's original writings, a forest of a work, Operis Silvam, as he calls it himself. In four books he treated his subject, the art of preaching well and decorously, with an inexhaustible abundance of examples, illustrations, schemes, etc. But was it possible that a work, conceived already by the Erasmus of 1519, and upon which he had been so long engaged, while he himself had gradually given up the boldness of his earlier years, could still be a revelation in 1533, as the Anchoridion had been in its day. Ecclesiastes is the work of a mind fatigued, which no longer sharply reacts upon the needs of his time. As the result of a correct, intellectual, tasteful instruction in a suitable manner of preaching, in accordance with the purity of the gospel, Erasmus expects to see society improve. Quote, the people become more obedient to the authorities, more respectful towards the law, more peaceable. Between husband and wife comes greater concord, more perfect faithfulness, greater dislike of adultery. Servants obey more willingly, artisans work better, merchants cheat no more. End quote. At the same time that Erasmus took this work to Froben at Basel to print, a book of a young Frenchman who had recently fled from France to Basel passed through the press of another Basel printer, Thomas Platter. It too was to be a manual of the life of faith, the institution of the Christian religion by Calvin. Even before Erasmus had quite completed the Ecclesiastes, the man for whom the work had been meant was no more. Instead of to the Bishop of Rochester, Erasmus dedicated his voluminous work to the Bishop of Augsburg, Christopher of Stadion. John Fisher, to set a seal on his spiritual endeavors, resembling those of Erasmus in so many respects, had left behind as a testimony to the world, for which Erasmus knew himself too weak, that of martyrdom. On 22nd June 1535, he was beheaded by command of Henry VIII. He died for being faithful to the old church. Together with more, he had steadfastly refused to take the oath to the statute of supremacy. Not two weeks after Fisher, Thomas More mounted the scaffold. The fate of those two noblest of his friends grieved Erasmus. It moved him to do what for years he had no longer done, to write a poem. But rather than in the fine Latin measure of that Carmen Heroicum, one would have liked to hear his emotion in language of sincere dismay and indignation in his letters. They are hardly there. In the words devoted to Fisher's death in the preface to the Ecclesiastes, there is no heartfelt emotion. Also in his letters of those days, he speaks with reserve. Quote, Woodmore had never meddled with that dangerous business and left the theological cause to the theologians, end quote. as if Moore had died for aught but simply for his conscience. When Erasmus wrote these words, he was no longer at Freiburg. He had, in June 1535, gone to Basel to work in Froben's printing office as of old. 
The Ecclesiastes was at last going to press, and still required careful supervision and the final touches during the process. The Adagia had to be reprinted, and a Latin edition of Origines was in preparation. The old sick man was cordially received by the many friends who still lived at Basel. Hieronymus Ruben, Johannes's son, who, after his father's death, managed the business with two relatives, sheltered him in his house zum Luft. In the hope of his return, a room had been built expressly for him, and fitted up as was convenient for him. Erasmus found that at Basel the ecclesiastical storms which had formerly driven him away had subsided. Quiet and order had returned. He did feel a spirit of distrust in the air, it is true. Quote, but I think that on account of my age, of habits, and of what little erudition I possess, I have now got so far that I may live in safety anywhere. End quote. At first he had regarded the removal as an experiment. He did not mean to stay at Basel. If his health could not stand the change of air, he would return to his fine, well-appointed, comfortable house at Freiburg. If he should prove able to bear it, then the choice was between the Netherlands, probably Brussels, Malines, or Antwerp, perhaps Louvain, or Burgundy, in particular Besançon. Towards the end of his life he clung to the illusion, which he had been cherishing for a long time, that burgundy wine alone was good for him and kept his malady in check. There is something pathetic in the proportions which this wine question gradually assumes. That it is so dear at Basel might be overlooked, but the thievish wagoners drink up or spoil what is imported. In August he doubted greatly whether he will return to Freiburg. In October he sold his house and part of his furniture, and had the rest transported to Basel. After the summer he hardly left his room, and was mostly bedridden. Though the formidable worker in him still yearned for more years and time to labor, his soul was ready for death. Happy he had never felt. Only during the last years he utters his longing for the end. He was still, curiously enough, subject to the delusion of being in the thick of the struggle. In this arena I shall have to fall, he writes in 1533. Only this consoles me, that near at hand already the general haven comes in sight, which, if Christ be favorable, will bring the end of all labor and trouble. Two years later his voice sounds more urgent. That the Lord might deign to call me out of this raving world to his rest. Most of his old friends were gone. Warham and Mountjoy had passed away before Moore and Fisher. Peter Gillis, so many years younger than he, had departed in 1533. Also, Pirchheimer had been dead for years. Beatus Renanus shows him to us during the last months of his life, re-perusing his friend's letters of the last few years, and repeating, this one too is dead. As he grew more solitary, his suspiciousness and his feeling of being persecuted became stronger. My friends decrease, my enemies increase, he writes in 1532, when Warham had died, 
and Eleander has risen still higher. In the autumn of 1535, he thinks that all his former servant pupils betray him, even the best beloved ones, like Quirin Telesius and Charles Utenhove. They do not write to him, he complains. In October 1534, Pope Clement VII was succeeded by Paul III, who at once zealously took up the council question. The meeting of a council was, in the eyes of many, the only means by which union could be restored to the church, and now a chance of realizing this seemed nigh. At once the most learned theologians were invited to help in preparing the great work. Erasmus did not omit, in January 1535, to address to the new pope a letter of congratulation, in which he professed his willingness to cooperate in bringing about the pacification of the church, and warned the Pope to steer a cautious middle course. On 31st May followed a reply full of kindliness and acknowledgment. The Pope exhorted Erasmus that you too, graced by God with so much laudable talent and learning, may help us in this pious work, which is so agreeable to your mind, to defend with us the Catholic religion by the spoken and the written word, before and during the Council and in this manner, by this last work of piety, as by the best act to close a life of religion and so many writings, to refute your accusers and rouse your admirers to fresh efforts. Would Erasmus, in years of greater strength, have seen his way to cooperate actively in the Council of the Great? Undoubtedly, the Pope's exhortation correctly represented his inclination. But, once faced by the necessity of hard, clear resolutions, what would he have effected? Would the spirit of peace and toleration, of reserve and compromise, have brought alleviation and warded off the coming struggle? He was spared the experiment. He knew himself too weak to be able to think of strenuous church political propaganda any more. Soon there came proofs that the kindly feelings at Rome were sincere. There had been some question also of numbering Erasmus among the cardinals who were to be nominated with a view to the council. A considerable benefice connected with the Church of Deventer was already offered him. But Erasmus urged the Roman friends who were thus active in his behalf to seize their kind offices. He would accept nothing. He, a man who lived from day to day in expectation of death and often hoping for it, who could hardly ever leave his room, would people instigate him to a hunt for deaneries and cardinals' hats? He had subsistence enough to last him. He wanted to die independent. Yet his pen did not rest. The Ecclesiastes had been printed and published, and Origenes was still to follow. Instead of the important and brilliant task to which Rome called him, he devoted his last strength to a simple deed of friendly cordiality. The friend to whose share the honor fell to receive from the old death-sick author a last composition prepared expressly for him amidst the most terrible pains, was the most modest of the number who had not lost their faith in him. No prelate or prince, no great wit or admired divine, but Christopher Eschenfelder, customs officer at Bopart on the Rhine. On his passage in 1518, Erasmus had, with glad surprise, 
found him to be a reader of his work and a man of culture. That friendship had been a lasting one. Ashenfelder had asked Erasmus to dedicate the interpretation of some psalm to him, a form of composition often preferred by Erasmus of late. About the close of 1535, he remembered that request. He had forgotten whether Ashenfelder had indicated a particular psalm and chose one at haphazard, Psalm 14, calling the treatise on the purity of the Christian Church. He expressly dedicated it to the publican in January 1536. It is not remarkable among his writings as to contents and form, but it was to be his last. On 12th February 1536, Erasmus made his final preparations. In 1527 he had already made a will with detailed clauses for the printing of his complete works by Froben. In 1534 he drew up an accurate inventory of his belongings. He sold his library to the Polish nobleman Johannes Alasko. The arrangements of 1536 testify to two things which had played an important part in his life his relations with the house of Froben, and his need of friendship. Boniface Amabach is his heir. Hieronymus Froben and Nicholas Episcopius, the managers of the business, are his executors. To each of the good friends left to him, he bequeathed one of the trinkets which spoke of his fame with princes and the great ones of the earth. In the first place to Louis Bear and Beatus Renanus. The poor and the sick were not forgotten, and he remembered especially girls about to marry and youths of promise. The details of this charity he left to Amerbach. In March 1536 he still thinks of leaving for Burgundy. Money matters occupy him, and he speaks of the necessity of making new friends, for the old ones leave him. The Bishop of Krakow, Zasius at Freiburg. According to Beatus Renanus, the Brabant plan stood foremost at the end of Erasmus's life. The regent, Mary of Hungary, did not cease to urge him to return to the Netherlands. Erasmus's own last utterance leaves us in doubt whether he had made up his mind. Quote, Though I am living here with the most sincere friends, such as I did not possess at Freiburg, I should yet, on account of the differences of doctrine, prefer to end my life elsewhere, if only Brabant were nearer." End quote. This he writes on 28th June 1536. He had felt so poorly for some days that he had not even been able to read. In the letter we again trace the delusion that Aleander persecutes him, sets on opponents against him, and even lays snares for his friends. Did his mind at last give way too? On 12th July the end came. The friends around his couch heard him groan incessantly, O Jesu misericordia, Domine libera me, Domine miserere me, and at last in Dutch, Liebe Gott. End of chapter 20